Hi, Mr. Galanek, and welcome to the Saving Delaware History Podcast. Could you tell me how you got involved with Cooch Diet Mills? Sure, yeah. Uh, uh, going back to uh, 1998, um, I had just started as a graduate student at the University of Delaware studying material culture and uh, was in a vernacular architecture seminar with Bernie Herman and uh, just really had an interest in historic mills when, when we were thinking about possible topics. I spoke with him as my he was my advisor. And he said, wow, I've got just the site for you for this project. And so he uh, gave me some information and uh, put put me in touch at, at that point uh, with, with Ray Johnson, uh, who was involved at the site there, uh, and uh, kind of went from there. I arranged the time to go out and, and visit the, the site, take some photos, and kind of dug into the the history of it, and it really turned out to be a fascinating project for me that brought together a couple of different interests I had, interests in historic landscape and architecture and the history of technology. Wonderful. So could you start us off by telling us how the mill got its name? Yeah, sure. Uh, When At the time, when I first went out there, um, it was, I think, I think it was first described to me as diet mill. and over the course of uh, working on researching the site and uh, its history, um, I really came to see it as, as the Cooch and Diet families as the two primary stories. So uh, the, the earlier history of the site uh, really traces back to Thomas Cooch, who came from England in 1746, and then uh, several generations of, of his children, grandchildren, uh, that owned and operated the mill until John W. Diet and Mary Emma Diet purchased the mill in 1893. And uh, so, yeah, so that's uh, how it gets its, how it gets its name. The, the major families that were involved, the millers uh, that really built, literally built the site and, and managed it and operated the business over uh, really over two centuries now. So when did the name shift from diet to Cooch Diet Mill? Yeah, you know, I'm not exactly sure uh, of the the exact uh the exact date of that of that change, uh but probably in the in the early 2000s, I would guess. And how has the mill been used over the years? So the the mill, you know, people think of think of uh, you know, mills are thinking of flour mills or grist mills, and that's really the, the you know the, the main reason for being uh, for the site is is milling wheat and corn and, and grains, uh, and uh, you know, in addition to that, I'd say it's sort of more than uh, just the the operation of of the mill itself, uh, but um, all the other activities that went on around it as well. So, uh, you know, it was a was a place of exchange. It was a post office uh, that operated out of there. It was a, you know, a, a point of connection via railroad and turnpike and highway and road um, as well. Mm-hmm. When did it become a post office? Yeah, I, I was looking through my notes and I didn't have a specific date. I did see, looking back to the 
for, for Delaware uh, historians, uh, the Beers Atlas uh, from 1868 uh, has uh, Cooch's Bridge post office listed um, on the map. So it was definitely a post office by that by that period, by the mid-19th century. That makes sense. And did it ever burn down? I think I was looking through your paper and it mentioned that a few times. Yeah, there were several fires um, at uh, at the site and uh, quite a bit of change, you know, quite a bit of change looking at the uh, both the landscape and the building itself. Uh, the building, you know, the, the, the modern building or, or the, the, the current sort of Cooch Diet Mill uh, with the uh, mansard roof uh, really dates to the the earliest parts of that to 1837, uh, but there was a 1792 mill building and then several mills in the 1720s uh, that preceded that. But there were several fires. There's mention in the records of a fire uh, in the 1820s uh, that may have that may have happened. Uh, it's also likely that uh, the, the the mill mills were destroyed during the Battle of Cooch's Bridge, which was a Revolutionary War battle that took place on and around the the lands at at Cooch Diet Mills in 1777. Uh, and then there were uh, let's see here the other the other dates of the fires um, in 1916 uh, was another major fire in the building. Uh, and there was uh, another one in 1933. So quite a, quite a few quite a few changes um, in both you know the the, the rebuilding of new uh, new structures in the 18th and 19th centuries, and then uh, you know refurbishing, uh, uh, restoring buildings after after fire after fire damage you know, even in the 20th century. How would the family handle it if their primary income had just burned down? What would they do while the mill was getting rebuilt? Right. Yeah, great question. Most of the families, the Cooch and Diet families during this time, had fairly significant, uh, you know, other sources of income, other occupations. Uh, and so they were able to, I think, manage, you know, during that during that shutdown um, uh, John Diet owned another mill, which was actually further south of uh, the current the the, the Cooch Diet mill. Uh, and so, you know, I think most of these um, most millers had some other, you know, had some diversified, uh, you know, work that they were doing or land holdings or other businesses they were involved in, occupations they were involved in too. Makes sense. So as the mill burnt down and got renovated uh, all these times. What sort of developments were made in milling technology? That's one of the really fascinating aspects of, of the site and of the story that it that it tells. Uh, you can really see you know, kind of the whole history of, of milling, uh, the environmental history aspects, the history of transportation, the history of technology um, that that kind of run through that story. So, uh, you know, the need for more power uh, during more horsepower to, to power the, the mill equipment, um, to have to, to be able to mill more grain, mill more efficiently, uh, you know, that really leads to the, you know, 
moving the, the, the extension of the raceways of the canals for moving water, uh, building larger dams to be able to have more uh, more water for more sustained power, and uh, the, the installation of the turbine as well to generate power more efficiently uh, by the by the later 19th century. Uh, the, the milling technology itself, the, the, the major shift um, in grain milling is uh, the move from burr stones, um, exactly what it sounds like, the big stone wheels uh, spinning horizontally, uh, which are sharpened, um, have to be regularly sharpened um, with chisels in order to have them toothed to be able to, to shear the grain uh, efficiently. Uh, by the 1880s and 90s, uh, there's a move towards uh, what is what is referred to as roller milling, uh, and these are ceramic or steel rollers, uh, which the grain is is forced through, and then the grain is pulverized between these steel rollers. Uh, and so that transition from burr stones to roller milling uh, is really a major change that takes place in in mass production uh you know industrial production of flour uh by the by that time period by the by the end of the 19th century and cooch diet mills um experiments with different different systems different millwork and equipment um starting you know in the 1870s and then through the 1890s uh and uh roller milling kind of takes takes uh, kind of becomes the, the supreme way of uh, operating mills, uh, both because it's really efficient, uh, but also because the product that it produces is uh, more standardized. Um, you get whiter flowers, and uh, the, the 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 emergence of of national markets of big midwestern grain mills uh, like Pillsbury and uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota, um, they really, uh, through advertising and marketing of, of product, start influencing what people want to buy. And so these local or regional mills like Cooch Diet Mill find themselves having to um, invest in this in, in these same kinds of technologies to be able to really compete. Is that the same technology that would produce 30% more flour, which is 47% of the power. Right. Yeah. It is. It is a more efficient, uh, a more efficient um, technology to use. Okay. Yeah. Did many mills yeah. adopt that at the time? They did. Yeah. There was really, a, you know, really a wave of of conversions that are taking place at this at this moment, uh, and and there are other things uh, at work during this this whole this whole time period as well. So milling is, you know, a lot of historians of technology have pointed to milling as really the the beginnings of, uh, you know, beginnings of automation and of kind of streamlined manufacturing. Uh, and so, uh, you know, right in Delwill, uh, Oliver Evans Mill, uh, which is closer to Wilmington there, is really one of the first that uh, he really perfects this system of moving grain uh, by conveyors within the building itself. That it's it's really a, 
in really a kind of automatic system, and that's within that's in the 18th century. So millwrights and millers specifically were, you know, really constantly experimenting with uh, creating patents for new devices that would, you know, make things work with less labor, would make things more efficient, would need less power, less water power, in order to to operate and yield more grain, right, or higher higher quality or higher control over um, flour and and meal that you're producing coming out of coming out of the mill, and so there's a whole series of uh, innovations that that take place, um, and, and that happen at at Cooch Diet Mills also, uh, of long and short system uh, kind of workflows or plans, and then the the roller milling equipment uh, particularly. Um, the uh, the other thing that's interesting to mention about that and adopting that technology is the um, uh, trade publications, trade magazines uh, that that came about uh, starting by the 1870s, and uh, these were you know professional journals uh, that featured the latest information um, about what new technologies were available. And uh, those, uh, one, a key piece of my research was really finding those uh, copies of those journals, um, which they have magazines that they have at uh, the Hagley Library in Wilmington. And so um, I spent quite a bit of time reading through those and actually found several articles that, that described what was happening at Cooch Diet Mill in some detail. Um, so it was kind of a featured property, featured uh uh, featured company within the magazines, within the Miller's Review um, back in the 1890s and, and before that as well. And so, uh, you know, it just sort of points to the, you know, the kind of innovation, sort of cutting-edge technology that, you know, was really ex- – that they experimented with at that site. And how did the mill's function change as the railroad was introduced to the area? Yeah, the railroad was, you know, I'd say one step, um, a kind of next next stage of development uh, that was just part of this whole network of of transportation technology from, you know, from the 17th and 18th centuries on. So um, the railroad comes to, uh, you know, the, the to, to Cooch Mill uh, in 1876. And they actually have their own stop on the railroad, and they have their own siding as well. So an area for cars to be moved off the main line, and then loaded and unloaded with product. Uh, and so that's you know that that becomes a, an important node in a transportation network uh, in the Delmarva Peninsula. Uh, it it's also uh, you know part of that you know being part of this larger network. Um, we can think about its connection with uh, the old Baltimore Pike, um, with um, the you know what was the old Newark uh, Road, uh, Delaware Route 72. So it's really this hub, the Glasgow Road. And it's really this kind of key point, transportation point uh, between north, south, and east, west travel. Um, you know, going back, going back into the 18th century. Uh, and that still, you know, still continues today. So as the mill sort of branched out, how did it include work with the early University of Delaware Agricultural Department? 
Yeah, that's a that's an area where it'd be fun to know to do a little bit more research. Uh, uh, you know, when I was working on the project, you know, my you know, like many people, I think you know, was fascinated by the earliest history of the site. You know, going back to the 1720s and uh, the ironworks and, and Iron Hill and Welsh Track settlement that was there. But I think the 20th century history is is incredibly important as well. Uh, and uh, an area for, for a little bit more research. Um, what I was really surprised to, to learn at the time, 20 years ago, as I kind of dug into this, is uh, there was a close relationship between uh, Cooch Diet Mills starting in the 1920s of producing poultry feed. And there were poultry farmers um, all around Iron Hill, around, around that immediate area. Uh, but uh, Ray Johnson had told me that uh, they started doing work in the 1930s and 40s at the mill uh, in conjunction with the University of Delaware Ag Department. And, uh, you know, subsequent research I've done unrelated to this back in back here in Michigan um, at Michigan State University, I learned quite a bit about agricultural engineering at Michigan State College, uh, Michigan State University at the time now. Uh, and uh, there was quite a bit of interest in poultry farming specifically and in engineering to make, uh, you know, to make that more, uh, more efficient, more productive. And, you know, during the 1930s and 40s, uh, federal support, federal programs, the AAA program, uh, WPA programs supported some of that work as, as part of relief work, as part of, uh, you know, Making uh, you know making agriculture more productive and, and more efficient and more affordable, and so my sense is that there's likely some connection there with the rise of kind of scientific agricultural engineering uh, and the poultry industry specifically in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, why you know why Cooch Diet Mills? How did they get involved with that? You know, proximity is certainly one part of that. You know. But probably a 15-minute car ride uh, between, you know, the mill and Newark, uh, the campus, uh, and they also had some, you know, some specific uh, advantages at the mill uh, to be able to, you know, do small batch production, to do more experimental uh, kinds of feed production there, and then also had a great connection via the railroad and the highway setting. North and south, and east and, and east and west, um, up and you know into the Delmarva Peninsula. What kind of experiments would they do with feed, and how would that impact the chickens and the production of poultry? Uh, you know, the, I think the mix of different grains uh, and um, how they're incorporated together. They had uh, the ability at the mill; they had produced feed going back into the 19th century. They were producing animal feed at the mill. So it wasn't a totally new thing that they started doing in the 1920s or 30s. They've been making animal feeds for, for a long time. Uh, but they had some ways of, of being able to mix, uh, to do what was described as volumetric mixing, uh, to, to kind of control, uh, you know, the, to control the nutritional content, the ingredients and the nutritional content of the feeds that were being produced. And so, uh, you know, the ability to, you know, say what happens if we create these different these different mixes of feed, and then we want to, uh, 
you know, gather data about how, you know, what the results look like in the chickens eating the seed or in their egg production, uh, that they could then do that and then do research and, and publish that research uh, to be able to, you know, make the industry better. So if Cooch Diet Mills had this flourishing business in animal feed and was still working as a flour mill, what brought it to a close? Yeah, I think, you know, many of the trends that had started back in, um, you know, back in the 19th century, the late 19th century continued, uh, you know, larger and larger uh, firms, uh, you know, gained greater market share as, you know, we saw national uh, and international food uh, producers really take center stage. And so, you know, that integration of, uh, you know, production, marketing, uh, you know, really made it tough for smaller regional mills to continue to just stay afloat in the marketplace, right? So I think there's just some efficiencies that were lost and uh, the profile of, of branding uh, was part of that. And then, you know, innovating at a small scale became more and more difficult within the food industry, right, within the agricultural industry. Um, some other changes are, uh, you know, looking, again, this is an area for more research, but, uh, you know, many of the experimental feed, uh, animal feed, uh, you know, work that they were doing at the mill in the 1930s and 40s, by the 1960s, uh, you know, again, agriculture itself becomes more industrialized and more specialized. So uh, the pelletization of food, uh, is one, of, of animal feed, is one thing that changes. Uh, and the mill really didn't have the ability to produce feed like that. Uh, so rather than loose grains uh, that would be fed, um, you know, kind of pellets like you would, uh, you know, like, like they use today uh, for, feeding, for feeding livestock and poultry. And then electronic controls. You know, the equipment that's in the mill, uh, the, the main milling equipment after the fire in uh, was it 1916, they actually uh, they actually go buy uh, milling equipment from the 1890s when they restore the building. So, uh, you know, that sort of gives you an idea of the the kind of pace of of technology and what was working, what was needed within the mill. Uh, newer mills are starting to use electronic controls. Um, by the 1960s, and so there just isn't the same control and really the same. They're not able to make the same product that most of the larger firms are are now are then putting out um, into the marketplace. So uh, I think the mill continues operating well into the 1980s, uh, but, you know, I think the, the main, the kind of height of its production uh, really starts to fade starting by the 1960s. So what happens then at the close of the mill? Where do the diets go and what happens to the building of the Cooch Diet Mill? Uh, it's in the late 1940s uh, that uh, William Johnson, Charles Gold, and Alberta Johnson uh, take ownership of the mill. So the diet families, uh, they are no longer involved with the mill. They sell the property uh, at that point, just as the Cooch family had sold their stake in the mill and water rights back in 1893 to diet. 
So this is kind of passing up the torch, right, to to a, to another family, to another group of owners in the 1940s. And it's my understanding, uh, and you might clarify this, uh, but I think in the night, it's in the it's in maybe the late 1990s, about the time I was involved with it, that uh, the state gets involved, right, and uh, the cultural affairs gets involved with the mill property, uh, and so it you know lives on in its current form, in its current form today. Yeah, I believe that was about the time that it was put on the National Register of Historic Places. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think it's a great I think it's a great site. It's great to see, uh, you know, the the kind of uh, environmental history, environmental education uh, that's happening alongside some of the history um, interpretation that that goes with it. Uh, that that's a part of the site today, and I think that you know is is a really part of what I really loved about the project was. Thinking about it as a landscape, as as a historic cultural landscape that, uh, you know, that uh, it really just allows people to see, you know, over three centuries of of continuity and change uh, between these, you know, connected artifacts, building structures, landscape features, and human activity. You know, the ways in which people have used uh, this same, you know, mile-long section of river, you know, in in raceway uh, to, you know, make a living, to uh, live, uh, to recreate in in nature, and uh, you know, it's it's great that it's it's preserved and retains the integrity that it does. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for this interview, Mr. Galanek. I really appreciate your time.